thing, particularly today, verses 1 to 4. Verses 1 to 4. And although we're not just focusing on this verse, took as our theme for today, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. A couple of months ago, I was at the Banner Ministers Conference and some of us got talking about what we were preaching. And I asked an older minister if he had preached through the whole of the New Testament yet. And he said, yes, I think I have actually. Uh, And then later in the conversation, he asked me what I was planning to preach on in the next few months. And I said, well, I'm thinking of preaching through Jude over the summer. And he said, oh, Jude, actually, I haven't preached through the New Testament yet. I still need to preach from the book of Jude. Uh, And that tends to be our attitude with the book of Jude. We, We can tend to overlook it. We can tend to almost forget all about it. It's a part of the Bible that I would guess uh, we're not so familiar with. In fact, one writer says the most neglected book in the New Testament is probably the book of Jude. And we can maybe say along with Jude, the the last, the the second and third letters of John, which are also very short and don't get a lot of attention. There's various reasons perhaps why we've overlooked the book of Jude. Maybe it is because it is so short, uh, just 25 verses long. Not even long enough to be divided up into chapters. Maybe because there are some very strange things in Jude. And maybe you were thinking that as we were reading through it just now. Uh, And we'll get to those stranger verses in due course. Perhaps also the fact that Jude spends a lot of time talking about judgment. Which increasingly is not a subject that Christians or non-Christians want to spend a lot of time on. Maybe that leads to neglect of this book. Well, regardless of those poor excuses, we shouldn't neglect any part of God's perfect and complete word. And rather than risk doing that in future, I'm preaching on Jude now so that someday I don't say, oh yes, I haven't actually preached on the whole New Testament. But we're not studying Jude just to tick it off a list. This is a timely, important, encouraging book for us to study. So we'll see today Jude wrote this letter to strengthen the convictions of the Christian church in the face of false teaching and ungodly living. And that's something that we face in every generation that we find ourselves in. Some kind of false claims, some particular form of ungodly living that the world is celebrating. Some of it very subtle and very dangerous for the church. And so we should pay attention To what Jude has to say about such things. So we just introduce ourselves to the letter today. We're going to look as I say at the first four verses. I want to think first of all today about the letter's author. Uh, The letter's author. And you have the outline in your bulletin today. Just to help you follow along. And the letter's author as we'll see is a servant of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Jude doesn't take up a lot of space introducing himself, probably because the people that he's writing to knew very well who he was. Perhaps he had pastored them, perhaps he had preached in their location. But he does tell us that he is a brother of James. There were at least two men called James who were leaders in the early church. There was James, the brother of John. And he was, the two of them were two of Jesus' closest disciples, along with Peter. And Acts chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that one of the Herods had that James put to death 
Uh, Relatively early on in the life of the New Testament church, he was martyred for preaching the gospel. The other James was the brother of Jesus, or to be more precise, the half-brother of Jesus. This James was the son of Joseph and Mary. And that James also became very prominent in the early church. He shows up in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21. And he wrote the letter of James that we also find in the New Testament. And so Jude identifies himself very clearly here as being the brother of one of the most well-known and respected leaders in the early church. But hopefully you're already thinking through the implications of this. If Jude was James's brother, then he was also Jesus' brother. And indeed, Jude is named as one of Jesus' brothers in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, which we read earlier. The crowds in Nazareth are muttering about Jesus. And they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Jude and Judas are just two different versions of the same name, uh, derived from the original Hebrew name Judah. And the name Jude, Judas, Judah, they were very popular in that generation. So Jude, or Judas as he originally was, and maybe he changed his name because of the associations of that one particular disciple, uh, who also had the name Judas, who went astray. But Jude, friends, is... A brother, a half-brother of Jesus Christ. And yet he doesn't introduce himself in this letter as a brother of Jesus, does he? Look again at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. And the word can also mean slave of Jesus Christ. Now I don't know about you, but... I think I would have been tempted to introduce myself as Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ, instead of slave, wouldn't you? Wouldn't we have wanted people to know? I, I grew up with the saviour of the world. I, I'm a brother and related by blood to the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the head of the church. But Jude doesn't do that. He doesn't try to impress anyone with his status Or his family name. He simply calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. That tells us something about Jude. More importantly it tells us what he thought. What he believed about Jesus. For one thing friends. This is part of the evidence. That Jesus really is who he said he was. That he really did rise from the dead. Because even his brothers treated him. As the saviour of the world. As their God. How many of us who are brothers or sisters would describe ourselves as a servant of the other or a slave of the other? Boys and girls here this morning, would you ever want to call yourself a slave of your older brother or your little sister? I don't think so. You'd be thinking they're not any more special than I am. They're not my king or my queen. And in fact, the Bible tells us that for quite a while, James and Jude and all the rest of Jesus' siblings had absolutely no desire to call themselves servants or slaves of Jesus. Mark chapter 3 verse 31 tells us how on one occasion Jesus' family, his mother, his brothers and sisters came and tried to call him away from his ministry. They thought he was crazy for saying the things that he was saying. They were embarrassed by him. 
John chapter 7 verse 5 says, Even his own brothers, James and Jude and Joseph and Simon, uh, did not believe him. You wouldn't have caught James or Jude calling themselves slaves of Jesus for most of the, for the first half or so or more of their lives. But what changed James and Judas, Jude's minds? Quite simply, friends, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. That's what gave James and Jude faith to believe that their brother was in fact their king. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 describes what Jesus' followers were doing after his resurrection and ascension. We read it earlier. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. James and Jude were there in the earliest prayer meetings of the New Testament church. And soon after that, they stopped calling themselves brothers of Jesus. And started calling themselves servants of Jesus. James chapter 1 verse 1. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude verse 1. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ. See Jude knew friends that surnames, status, bloodlines in the end they don't mean anything. There are only servants of Jesus and strangers of Jesus. I wonder what status are you most proud of in life? What achievement or what reputation means the most to you? Maybe you've risen through the ranks in your profession. You've worked hard. Proud to be at the level you're at. And there's plenty that's good about working hard and being rewarded for it. The Bible says whatever we do, we're to do it with all our might for the glory of God. Maybe you always wanted to have a family. What means most to you is that you're a husband, you're a wife, you're a parent or grandparent. Maybe your family name is one that pops up all across our little denomination. A respected name, a name that's been in the church for generations. And all those things, friends, are reasons to give thanks to God. and We can be thankful for those blessings, but friends, none of it will matter when we die. Your ability to make money, how well you've done in life, the big family holiday you're planning to go on, your sexuality, your popularity, your achievements, none of them gain you entry into the kingdom of God. If the brother by by blood, the one sharing the same mother as our Lord Jesus Christ, if it didn't guarantee him entry into the kingdom, then nothing else can guarantee you entry into the kingdom. All that matters is whether you are a servant of King Jesus, whether you know him and love him and believe in him. Is Jesus just some mythical figure to you, just some good guy about whom we think, well, no one really knows all the truth about him. Is his name just a swear word to you? Or is he your Lord, your God, your King? Jude here is not just being humble, though I believe there is an element of humility in his description here. But to call himself a servant of Jesus, he's saying that he serves the king. He speaks in the name and by the authority of his king. And likewise, you and I, friends, whoever we are, we are to live our lives for the glory of our king. 
There are no second class Christians. There are no VIP Christians either. Whatever our station out in the world, here in the church, we are all the same. Regardless of surname, regardless of job title, we are servants of Jesus Christ. Is that your identity today before anything else? Is that what you gladly call yourself today? So the letter's author, a servant of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the letter's recipients, who who this letter was sent to, saints in Jesus Christ. Saints in Jesus Christ. Jude describes his readers as saints in verse 3. And that's quite a common description of all Christians. That's who the saints are according to the Bible. All Christians are saints. The word just means holy ones. People set apart from the world. Uh, But look at three more words that Jude uses to describe the saints uh, in verse 1. He says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, beloved, and kept. Let's think briefly about those three descriptions. First of all, he says that saints are called. This is what we call effectual calling. Effectual calling. There's a whole chapter, chapter 10, I think it is, in our Westminster Confession of Faith on effectual calling. And this is when someone hears the, the good news of Jesus Christ as it's being preached even right now in this room. And they hear that call and the Holy Spirit births new life within them. The Holy Spirit, as they hear that truth, as they hear that word, the Holy Spirit enters in and changes their heart and their soul. God speaks in Ezekiel and Jeremiah of, I will remove the heart of stone within you, a dead heart, a heart dead in sin. And instead I will put within you a heart of flesh, A living heart that cries out in faith to Jesus. That's effectual calling. Plenty of people hear the good news of Jesus Christ as it is preached. But not everyone responds in faith. That only happens when God by his spirit renews and regenerates. And effectively calls that person. And so that means friends that from beginning to end. Your salvation is the result of something that God has done in you. And because God has done it, no one can ever undo it. It's forever. It's a permanent change in your life. You are called. Then as well, Jude says that they are beloved, or some of your translations will simply say loved. And it's a word that he uses two or three more times throughout the letter. And the language here emphasizes that God has loved us, that he loves us now, and he will love us forever it is something that he has done in the past but which still carries on and will carry on forever into the future you might ask well when did God start loving us if we can use that language well Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 4 Ephesians 1 4 he chose us in him that's in Christ before the foundation of the world in love Paul says He predestined us. He chose us for adoption as sons through faith in Jesus Christ. Did you get that? God has loved you since before he even created the earth. One preacher says, before God ever said, let there be light. 
He loved you. He had chosen you. And that love finds its fullest expression in the Lord Jesus Christ. God become a man. He went and died on the cross in our place for our sins. That is love, as one writer has said, so amazing, so divine. A love that you just won't find anywhere else. Before we were even alive, before we could even try to earn God's love, which we couldn't anyway because of our sin, he had chosen to love us. Called, beloved, and the last word that he uses is the word kept. Kept. The word here means that you have someone standing guard over you. It's like the sheep on the Bethlehem hillside the night Jesus was born. They were being guarded. They were being kept, protected by the shepherds. And that's what God is doing for all those that he has called and loved. And again, the language emphasizes this is continual. We have been kept. We are being kept. We will always be kept. Paul says in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Jesus himself describing himself as the good shepherd. He said in John 10.28, No one, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. So if you're a Christian today, dear friend, here's who you are in Jesus Christ. You have been called You are loved, more loved than you could ever have imagined. One preacher is fond of saying, the truth of the gospel is that you're more sinful than you would ever have been able to admit and you're more loved than you could possibly have hoped and you are kept. And all of Jude's words emphasize to his friends the certainty of our salvation, that we have earned nothing from God. Because of our sin, we could never have earned anything from God except his wrath. But he has loved us out of sheer grace. And he will never let us go. He will never change his mind about that. We we sang it earlier. His loving kindness. His mercy endures forever. And this is how Jude chooses to greet his readers. And I will try to make a point of reminding you of this greeting. As we go on through the letter. Because as we get into the letter. We'll see there are some very serious warnings. Uh, describing some very dangerous enemies. But Jude first wants to encourage his readers. He gives these warnings in the context of reminding them of how loved and blessed they are by God. And that's how he finishes the letter as well. uh, With the wonderful words of that benediction that is sometimes used. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you, to keep you from falling. Wonder, Christian, do you ever worry about falling? Some of you might be reaching an age where you worry about physical falls. I'm thinking here of spiritual falls. Do you ever worry about, as as we tend to think of it this way in our minds, about being a good enough Christian? As I've said already, there's no such thing as a better or worse or a good enough Christian. We are all saved by the same incomparable grace of God. He loved you before you were even alive to try to sin against him or try to please him. He doesn't love you depending on your performance. Maybe you struggle with a a sense of loss or loneliness. 
Maybe you're struggling to live without the love, the loving relationship you had with someone very special. Nonetheless, you are more deeply loved by God than even the best of the human relationships that we have together. Maybe you wonder, will I really make it to heaven? What if I mess up? What if my faith isn't strong enough? Christian, you're being kept. In the words of the psalmist, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Unlike us tired parents or grandparents who physically cannot keep our eyes on our little ones every single second. And before you know it, they bump their head or cut their thumb. God's eye is always on us. He is guarding us and keeping us until the day we enter into glory with him. And just to emphasize all of it further, just look what Jude adds in verse 2. May mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, that's not getting what we deserve, isn't it? It goes hand in hand with grace, which is getting what we don't deserve. Peace, that's not just the absence of war in the Bible. That's, that's everything in the world in perfect harmony, perfect rest. Especially uh, between us and God. Again, as what the angels announced to the Bethlehem shepherds because of Jesus' arrival. They said, peace on earth between God and those with whom he is pleased. And again, love. May mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. What Judah is saying, friends, is that the blessings that we already have as Christians, as saints, they're just going to keep increasing. All that God's given, all that he's promised, it's ours now and it always will be and it's only going to get better. This is what it means to be a saint. It doesn't mean you're so impressive that you get your very own stained glass window in some cathedral and you have to pose for a picture looking as if you've never moved a muscle in your life. Saints begin life as imperfect Ordinary people who are nonetheless called and loved and kept by our great Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. May that give you assurance today, dear Christian. May that spur you on in your service of Jesus. So the letter's author, a servant of Jesus Christ. The letter's recipients, saints in Jesus Christ. And finally, the letter's purpose to contend for the truth about Jesus Christ. Contend for the truth, or, or more accurately, as he has it here, uh, to contend for the faith. Uh, verse 3, he says, Beloved, and uh, just notice again the word used again there, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So Jude says, I have been planning to write to you about something else, about what he calls our common salvation. And maybe what he means there is that he could have spent a whole letter uh, writing a lot more about, about what he's only been able to give a couple of lines to that were loved and kept and so on. He wanted to maybe say more about all those things. But instead, moved and directed by the Holy Spirit, he wrote to tell them that they must contend for the faith. The word contend there is a word from uh, the Olympic Games or the gladiators in the arena in the ancient world. It's a word that means striving, straining, pushing with all your effort, all your power towards a goal. And we've seen that on TV, athletes pushing themselves to their limits. 
straining for the prize at the finish line. Jude says that's what his readers need to do, not in the world of sport, but in the arena of faith. Their their doctrines, the, the truth about Jesus Christ, they're going to have to contend for that truth. They're going to have to be ready to strain to, with, with, to hold on to that truth. Why? Look at verse 4. Because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. And when Jude describes them as certain people here, several commentators suggest that the language is, is derogatory. It's, it's saying something negative about them. It's like when we say, oh, you know the sort of them. You know, you know what that person's like, a bit of a, a dodgy dealer, someone you can't really trust. And Jude also says these are ungodly people. Again, that's a word that he'll use several times later in the letter. The word means these people are arrogant, they are proud, they are refusing to believe that they are accountable to God. They're, they're living as though they won't have to answer to God. What is it exactly that these ungodly people are doing? Well, if you look again at verse 4, it says they, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Uh, sensuality is not a word we use much today, but uh, the word here is, is strongly associated elsewhere in the Bible with sexual sin of all sorts and kinds. Though it's not limited to that, it certainly includes that. And so the attitude of these people that Jude is warning them about, friends, is that their attitude is we can do what we like. We can live whatever sinful, even sexually sinful lifestyles we like because God will forgive us. He's gracious. He's loving. He'll welcome us and accept us regardless of how we live. One writer says of these ungodly people, their version of grace was employed in the service of lust. Their version of grace was employed in the service of lust. As what Paul warned about as well in Romans chapter 6, he says, will we go on sinning that grace may abound? No, he says. You've misunderstood the gospel if that's how you treat the grace of God. It's not just there for us to live, uh, to excuse how we live however we like. And this is exactly what we're seeing today. To their shame, we're seeing it even in parts of the professing Christian church. Church leaders calling lust, love. Setting up committees to explore what the Bible, quote, really says about marriage and gender and sexuality. Whole denominations claiming to be Christian but offering teachings about Jesus that fly in the face of God's word. Sensuality uh, covers anything anyone does that runs contrary to God's word. Again, perhaps particularly thinking about the area of sexual ethics, but other things as well. People excusing forms of selfishness or greed or idolatry in the name of grace. And Jude's purpose in writing, writing a letter that he didn't at first plan to write, but his purpose in writing is to tell his readers, contend. Fight for the faith in the face of this. And notice, friends, he calls it the faith. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, not a faith that is going to be changed. 
Not a set of doctrines and beliefs that are going to be added to. Judah's writing perhaps one of the very last books or letters that were written in the New Testament era. And he's saying we have our doctrines. We have our beliefs. It is not the business of anyone to now subtly come into the church and start changing it around. The language there of once for all delivered, it stresses this, that these are unchanging beliefs and faith and practice. The imagery here is of one person passing something on to the next. And the way a relay runner passes on the baton to the next, he doesn't stand there twiddling with the baton and thinking, well, the baton would look better if I bent it into this shape. He just passes the baton on to the next person. Friends, Judah's calling us to contend for our unchanging gospel, our unchanging doctrine, our unchanging faith. And so when a well-meaning friend starts trying to persuade you that actually a couple living together are married in God's eyes, or when some denomination sets up a committee to explore some practice that they think suddenly needs changed, Or when we're asked to pray and contact MPs about legislation that attacks the sanctity of life or family or the Lord's day. Contend for the faith. Struggle for it. Shed some holy sweat for it. Get uncomfortable for the sake of it. And don't be easily taken in by the arguments of certain men. Ungodly men. Jude says of these people, verse 4, they have crept in unnoticed. They are right in the heart of the church, he says. Satan is subtle. He doesn't throw up big warning signs to sell it, tells, this is false doctrine, you might be interested in this, or you can stick with the truth over there. He uses words like tolerance and compassion and equality and inclusivity. And before we know it, sections of the professing church are celebrating the same sinful practices as the world. And that leads eventually to the death of the church. A fellow pastor, over several of them over in Scotland, saying that every week almost there are churches closing that are part of denominations that have sold out on their doctrine long ago. They're committing themselves to a slow death Because they didn't contend. And Judah's saying that that all of us must be ready to contend. He's not writing this letter to pastors. He's not writing this letter to Bible college academics. He's writing this letter for factory workers and teachers and parents and company directors. We must be ready, friends, to say this is what the scriptures say. And they've always said it. This is the once for all gospel. And it will not change. Jude never actually tells us in this letter specifically what these certain men were teaching. But whatever it was, it showed up in how they lived. And in their attitude, it says they pervert the grace of God. And they deny our master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Both of those descriptions of Jesus emphasize that he is sovereign over everyone and everything. The word For master there is quite a rare word in the New Testament, but it means he is in full control and is to be respected and obeyed. These people, whatever they were, whatever beliefs they were claiming, their lifestyle was saying that they didn't believe that Jesus was master and Lord. And so that's a challenge for us as well, isn't it? 
Leaving aside for a moment what you say you believe, would people know it by how you live? Does the Lordship of Jesus Christ govern how you treat this day, the Lord's Day? Resting from work and giving other people every opportunity to rest from their work and prioritizing worship with God's people. Does the Lordship of Jesus Christ govern your home life? How you treat your spouse, how you treat your children or your parents, boys and girls? Does the Lordship of Jesus Christ prompt you to reach for his word and call out to him in prayer each day so that you, so that you know better what your Lord and Master wants of you so that you can spot the errors when they come along and you can see where people are diverging from his truth? Or are you in any measure denying the Lordship of Jesus Christ in theory or in practice? Jude warns us here, those who oppose or deny the Lordship of Jesus, who make excuses for their sin, he says in verse, uh, in verse 4, uh, their condemnation, uh, they were designated for this condemnation long ago. In other words, God has already decided that he is going to judge them. And we'll think more about that next week. God will judge them and punish them when and how he sees fit. That's the warning for any of us here today who are denying Christ as our Lord and Master. But if you do gladly call Jesus your Lord and Master, dear friend, Jude urges us to contend, to struggle, to fight for the faith, the unchanging, perfect word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're thinking earlier about brothers and sisters called to do that in Pakistan. We're called to do it here as well. We need to stand our ground, holding to the same faith and the same gospel that has been passed down to us. And we do so knowing that we are called We are beloved and we are kept. And no one and nothing, no attack, no false doctrines, no pressure from the world will ever be able to change that. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so, beloved saints today, may we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Amen.